My wife makes a glorious apple crisp. It's the best. I checked in first service, honey, to make sure my mom wasn't here when I said that, because that would have been an interesting moment. But my wife's apple crisp is truly something glorious. We love it so much, but there's a bit of a problem in our house lately. Her schedule is kind of messed up. She's doing her master's in psychotherapy. She finally decided it's time to deal with my husband. I need some professional help. So she's doing her master's in psychology, and uh, it's messing with our schedule a little bit. She's uh, so busy. Most nights find us sitting at the dining room table, um, writing until you know, we fall into bed and then get up the next day and do it all over again. I've almost finished my book, Lord willing. <clears throat> Today I'll finish chapter 12, and then there's one left. So we are like the most boring people ever, just sitting at our table working so she has no time to make apple crisp. So I thought last week I would take matters into my own hands. Thank you very much. Now looking at me, I know I look like a chef, right? You're like, that guy can cook, kind of. Like, I'm not really that good at it, but I can kind of cook. But I have never in 44 years made an apple crisp. I thought, how hard could it be? So I opened up my mother's recipe book and I thought, I'm going to make apple crisp. And so I made it and I was pretty excited about it. But how'd it turn out? Kind of, well... To be honest, meh. How do I know it was kind of meh? Because we had leftovers. <laughs> there were, and it, it hurt me in my heart that there were leftovers. Because we never, they sat there for two days. Like my darn kids not eating apple crisp that daddy made. Because it just wasn't as glorious as mom's. My kids proved to me in spurning my apple crisp that everyone prefers glorious to good enough. The problem is, given that, we always mess things up. Like what happens in Genesis 27. This is a very difficult chapter. May the Lord help us as we navigate it. Take a listen to all the things that get messed up here. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his elder son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am, He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food such as your father loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, um, actually he says, behold, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be upon me, my son. Only obey my voice and bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah, listen to this cold woman right here. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread that she had prepared into his hand, into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. 
I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, uh, How is it that you have so quickly found it, my son? He answered, He's thinking on his feet here. Uh, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near me and kiss me, my son. He's still not 100% sure. Come here and give me a nice, wet, liggery kiss. That's a Goonies reference. Uh, so he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Bom, bom, bom. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father, Isaac, said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and cooked for me delicious food? And I have blessed him, and yes, he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he's cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. Behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all his brothers, and I've given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I've sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob, because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him, and Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Lavan, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? She's definitely working the system. I didn't uh, crack this sermon till Thursday night at 11.30 p.m., I worked on it like I always do, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Didn't crack it till Thursday night, 11 p.m. It's difficult, right? It's very hard to find something hopeful. It's very hard to apply this to your life. But the Lord and His faithfulness led me through. So here's your thesis for this one. 
We always uh, mess things up, which is why Jesus had to get messed up. So let's learn everything we can about not being fools from Genesis 27, because the sooner we learn these lessons and start living by them, the less messed up our life is going to be. Starting with verses 1 through 4. Let's paraphrase them. What's happening here? Isaac is old. He can't see. He's not sure when he's going to die, but he is sure about one thing. He wants a pizza. You're like, it's a delicious food. Pizza is delicious. He wants a pizza. He doesn't want pizza. He wants his favorite meal. He wants comfort food. Ever felt like, I just need comfort food? I ordered pizza this Thursday because I was like, I cannot cook one more meal. I done told you my wife is doing her master's. It's like, I got to cook again tonight. I can't do it. So I, we actually call that pulling a hat maker. Those of you who know Jen Hatmaker know that she's talked about the fact that every once in a while she just gives herself permission to order pizza. And so I'll often text Nikki and say it's a hat maker kind of night. So I just, you know, I need some comfort food. I need some pizza. That's Isaac. He's getting old. He can't see anymore. He's not sure when he's going to die. And he wants a pizza. What's the point? He's fading. Isaac is fading. The patriarch is fading. We all fade. We're all fading. I need glasses. I realized this yesterday. My parents came over. They're like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm good. I, I think I might need glasses, though, but probably I'm good. Mom said, well, you should try mine. Nah, nah, I'm fine, Mom. No, really, you should try them. Just try them on. I'm sure, just, just, you know, just try them on. I'm good, Mom. I, I can see fine. You know, maybe you should just try them. So I put the glasses on, and my, I kid you not, my first thought, dang it. I had 20-20 vision my whole life. Not anymore. Uh, I'm fading like my eyesight. So are you. Isaac's fading. We're fading. We're fading. You want to be a little less messed up? Stop fighting old age. Stop fearing death. Okay, embrace the fact that you've been built for eternity. The story about God and his people is true. You've been built for eternity. You weren't originally designed to die. That's why every human ever born is like, it's not right that I should die someday. Right? Have you ever met anyone who's like, I'm good with it. I'm good with death. I'm good. I'm good. No problem. It's fine. I don't even think about it, really. Right? Most people are just like obsessing about the fact that they're not going to live forever because in their mitochondria, they know that they were built to live forever. You've been built for eternity. So don't fear death. Know that you've been built for the long haul. You're only dying because of the curse, because Adam and Eve sinned against God in the first place, and sin, death, and curse entered into the human story. But that's not how you were designed. Okay, you're only dying because of the curse. That revulsion that you feel to the very idea of death is as natural as breathing. And keep in mind, if you're trying to not fear death, that Jesus ultimately conquered death in his resurrection. So look, I am counting on the fact that the story is true. So if you're not at the point yet where sure, you're sure the story is true, that's okay. I get it. Give it time. You'll come around. You keep tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Eventually be like, it's true! Right? And you, then you'll find in that moment that you're like, oh, I'm not afraid of dying anymore. But probably not until then, though. So although you're fading now, keep in mind the fact that your future is very bright. How do I know your future is very bright? Well, the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb 
is its lamp, Revelation 21, 23, speaking of the new Jerusalem. How about that, by the way? I don't actually think there won't be any celestial bodies, because why would God have made celestial bodies in the first place if he was going to do away with them in the new heavens and the new earth? That would seem pretty silly. So I don't think there won't be any celestial bodies, but you won't need them. Why? Because the Lamb, Jesus, will be your lamp. How awesome is that? You're like, I need a nap. I have to draw the blinds. Because good old Jesus won't stop shining. Okay, your future is very bright. So remember that the next time the darkness comes knocking, you're like, all right, darkness, I understand. Take your best shot. Because my future is bright. Stop dreading your future. Instead, look forward to it in faith. Look forward to it in faith. And while you're at it, do everything you can not to take matters into your own hands. God help you. God help me. You see, Isaac wants a pizza and to bless his firstborn. That's what he wants. He just wants comfort food. He wants to bless his firstborn. No fuss, no muss. That's what I want. But Rebecca has other ideas. Again, paraphrasing verses 5 through 10. One, she's eavesdropping. Right? Sarah used to do this too. Listening in. She's like, huh. Isaac's about to bless Esau. Maybe not, though. Calls her son Jacob, her favorite son, and he's like, I got a plan. Esau's gone out to kill some animals. He's probably going to get goats or sheep or something. Go to the flock right now. Bring me two. I'll cook your dad's favorite meal. Then you can take it to him, and guess what? Dad will bless you instead of Esau. She's, she's got a better idea. If you want to be uh, less messed up, do not think that you have better ideas than God. Now you're like, well, Todd, how do you know that Rebecca thought she had a better idea than God? Well, that's typically what you're thinking at the root of it when you take matters into your own hands. I got a, I got a better idea. But like, if Rebecca's a little shaky example for you, lucky for you, I have a few other ones. Some examples, if you will. Adam and Eve and the snake. God says, you know, that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, leave that one alone. Don't touch it. Even if you touch it, you're going to die. Snake's like, I got a better idea. Eve takes a look at the fruit. She's like, this is a nice looking fruit. Smells nice. I got a better idea. Uh, Cain and Abel, the Lord says, bring me an offering, the best you can bring. Abel's like, all right, brings him the best he can bring. Cain, though, he's like, I got a better idea. I think the Lord might like it if I practiced efficiency here. I mean, this kumquat I just found in the field is good enough. It's good enough. I, I got a better idea. Oh, wait a minute. Noah and his contemporaries. The world is coming to an end. Please come and take refuge in the ark. You know what? We're good. We're good. I don't see any clouds. We're good. I got a, I got a better idea, Noah. How about we stay right here? Tower of Babel. I got a good idea. We could build a tower that'll reach to heaven itself, and then once we ascend, it will be God. That's a great idea. I got a better idea. Let's build a tower. How about Abraham when they went down to Egypt? He's like, I got a better idea. I will pretend that my wife is my sister. That is a very good plan, and I could keep going. I literally just like worked through each chapter of the Old Testament. I was like, I literally could have spent the entire 35 minutes going through examples, which would have been funny, but we wouldn't have preached the sermon. 
all these fools like me thinking we have a better idea than God. The Bible's a story of God and his fool people like me. That's what it is, a story of a good God and his fool people like you. You don't have better ideas than God. You want your life to be a little less messed up? How about you try doing what he says on for size? Now look, your conscience will help you with this. It'll tell you when you're trespassing into territory that does not belong to you. Let's borrow a phrase from the charismatics whom I love. You'll get a check in your spirit. You ever heard that phrase? All you charismatics say, oh, I've heard it. I got a check in my spirit. What's a check in your spirit? You know what it is? It's that knot you get in your stomach when you're about to do something you know you shouldn't. That's like an early warning system from Jesus that God built into you. It's like, beep-boop, 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 beep-boop. Warning, 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 warning. Don't do it. Don't do it. Our world is so twisted. I've actually read literature that talks about the human experience and how that moment of dread that you feel in the pit of your stomach is really your awakening to full aliveness as your body gets, you know, whoo, releases adrenaline into you. Do it. Pursue those moments. Do, don't do it. Don't do it. That is an early warning system. That's a check in your spirit. When you get a check in your spirit, listen to it. Listen to it. Like, Jacob gets a check in his spirit. Mom's like, hey, I got this plan. What does he say in verse 11 and 12? That's a really good plan, Mom. Because I'm the fabulous one. Remember, I'm like the smooth man. I like to shave. Esau's hairy. Dad might think I'm trying to pull a fast one. He might, he might curse me instead of blessing me. That's a, that's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. If you want your life to be a little less messed up, next time you get a check, heed it. Heed it. God talks to you through your conscience. If you don't, bad things are going to happen. So what happens in verses 13 through 17? Look at this woman. She steals her older son's clothes, his best clothes, in verse 15. You know what struck me about this? Esau is her son, too. Like, I literally thought about, like, childbirth. Like, she, like, gestated this boy and, and, and gave birth to him and nursed him, helped him when he was crying, Changed his baby clothes, helped him learn to walk. What is it about Esau that made her hate him so much that she could sell him out like this? Steal his clothes and put them on her younger son, Esau's little brother. That's, that's, that's cold. And then she does something very startling. She places on him the animal skins. And here's my aha moment from 1138 at night this past Thursday. Here's where I found my way in. This, here's where this teaching became a sermon. I thought to myself, she doesn't have a lot of time to do this. She's trying to get this all done while Esau is out hunting. So this is like, go, 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 go. So when she kills those animals and skins them, she does not have time to tan them. She does not have time to salt them. She does not have time to scrape them clean like they would have done. She does not have time to stake them out in the sun and let them dry for weeks. She must have taken those bloody carcasses, cut them up, and hastily tied them onto her younger son. So that as he walked into his father, who, thank God, happened to be blind, he would not have seen that his son was coming to him as a blood-dripped mess. And here's where it hit me. I thought to myself, where have I seen this before? 
Where have I seen this before? Something's always got to die. Where have I? I know where I've seen this before. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Genesis 4.21 God kills two of the creatures he's made to make coverings for his idiot children, Adam and Eve. And in that sequence, it doesn't tell us that he took time to lay them out and let them dry in the sun. It doesn't say that he clapped his hands and poof, Armani. Right? It doesn't. He just killed some animals and made coverings of skins for Adam and Eve. So let me tell you, as I visualize Adam and Eve leaving the garden, banished by God on that awful evening, I picture them with those bloody skins hanging on their body, a bloody, dripping mess as they are exiled to the east of Eden. Where else have I seen this? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Genesis 6, 5 to 7 in the pre-flood sequence. God is about to massacre humanity. Where else have I heard this before? Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid them over against the other. This is Abraham responding to God's command to sacrifice those animals in preparation of God walking through them as the smoking pot of fire as God seals the covenant, the promise that he has made with Abraham. Something's always got to die. In Leviticus 1, we have laws about burnt offerings. In Leviticus 2, we have laws about grain offerings. In Leviticus 3, we have laws about peace offerings. In Leviticus 4, we have laws about sin offerings. In Leviticus 5, we have laws about guilt offerings. In Leviticus 6, we have laws about priestly offerings. And again, in Leviticus 7, we have more laws about priestly offerings. In Leviticus 8, we have Aaron getting his earlobes dipped in blood from the sacrifice to cover for him when he goes into God's presence so that God will not strike him. In Leviticus 9, we have the people of Israel bringing seven animals to the tabernacle of meeting so that the priests can massacre those animals in front of the entire congregation to offer them as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. Something's always got to die. In Leviticus 10, we have Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, the oldest sons of Aaron, whom God burns up in his presence because they dared offer him the wrong kind of fire. Someone's always got to die. Then we have the firstborn in Egypt after Pharaoh will not let God's people go. So God sends the angel of death and wipes out all the firstborn of Egypt. And then later, to add insult to injury, when Pharaoh and his armies pursue God's people out of Egypt, God wipes out the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And then did you know that after the Israelites played the fool with Aaron and the golden calf while Moses is up on Mount Sinai and then he returns down and sees them cavorting before their false god? Did you know that after those events, once they'd settled it, Moses, at God's command, takes the Levites and says, go, take your swords and kill for me this day 3,000 of your brothers and sisters. Spare not your friends. Spare not your families. And did you know that they actually do it? They actually go out and they take their swords and they massacre 3,000 of their peers that day at God's command. Why? Because someone always has to die all throughout the sad history of God and his fool people until finally to stop the constant bloodshed, God steps in, and God the Father offers God the Son once 
and for all as the final bloody sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world so that the bleeding could stop. Did you know that they scourged Jesus before they crucified him? Do you know what scourging is? Ever heard of a cat of nine tails? A piece of wood with leather thongs with pieces of lead or bone at the end. They'd bend you over a rock and they would whip you. Always trying to bring the cat of nine tails around to your side. Here's the fleshy part, right? So they'd, some of us more than other, right? So they, they, they whip you and then when they pulled it back, it would tear the flesh away. And they'd whip you and then they'd tear back and pull the flesh away. And sometimes it was so bad that it would rip the ribs out of the prisoner's body. And they'd pull it back. So they do this to Jesus before they send him to be tried and they place the crown of thorns on his head and he's standing there as a bloody mess and they spit on him and they revile him and they beat him after they ripped his flesh from him and then they make him carry his crossbar through the streets of Jerusalem and is it any wonder that he collapses under the weight so they have to bring one siren of Cyrene to take his place and bear his cross for him and then they pin him to that tree and they put nails through his wrists and ankles and then they have this really clever way where they put a pit at the foot of the cross and as they lift it up it drops in and as he hits all of his joints come out of the socket and he's standing there a bloody mess and he can't breathe that's how you die on the cross you asphyxiate you can't lift yourself up. And he's a bloody mess. So much so that he dies before the other two prisoners. How do I know? Well, because I've read John 19. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Did you know the Romans would do this? If you were taking too long to die on a Friday, they crucify you on a Friday, they got to be done before the Sabbath because the Jews don't want dead bodies lying on crosses over the course of the Sabbath. So the Romans would walk up, take their big old Roman spears, flip them end over end, grab them here, here's the blade, grab them here, walk up, whack! Dang it, you got to do it again. His femur's real strong. Whack! Oh, good, that broke the one. Guy's screaming, ah, I'll break his femur. Break the next, they're trying to sever the femoral artery, right? So they die quicker. So there's the one prisoner. Good, we got him. Get this guy. Same thing. The left-handed soldier now is like, oh, my, it's my turn. Whack! Dang it, I hit hard. What's wrong? You soft? Whack! Got him. Okay, what about this king of the Jews? Ah, uh, he's already dead. And then one soldier wants to make sure, though. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Flips the spear back the right way. Pulls it out. And immediately came out blood and water. Someone's always got to die. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23a. Why do I drive it home with such awful detail today? To be able to make this point. Your life is a bloody mess, which is why Jesus had to become one. Here's the thing, though. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, Romans 6.6. 6. If you ever think that you're having a mighty struggle to crucify your flesh, to walk by the Spirit so that you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, remember 
that the old self was crucified with Jesus. And all those indignities I've just described is what's happening to your old self. So if you think your old self is taking a long while to expire, this is normal. So keep going, one foot at a time. One whack at a time, one lash at a time. You're like, whoa, this is, this is super encouraging, Todd. Thank you very much. Here's the good news. Because Jesus got messed up, you don't have to live that way any longer. Sorry, let me read it again. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Because Jesus got messed up to that degree, you don't have to pretend you're someone you're not. Like Jacob does in verse 18. Because Jesus went to that awful cross, you don't have to be a lying poser who over-spiritualizes things like Jacob does in verse 20. Oh, your God led me to it, Father. Don't you just hate lying, over-spiritualizing posers? I just They bother me so much. I so don't want to be one of those people. Which is why most of the time when people tell me about the awful things that are happening in their life, I don't give them a quick and easy answer. I just say, oh, I know. I know. That's awful. This week, we had friends of ours suffered a miscarriage. Members of one of our churches, and so they sent us a text about us to pray for them. And my text said, all I can say is that the pain and indignity of this moment is part of the pain and indignity that God the Father laid on God the Son at the cross of Calvary. And he has paid for this pain in full. And he has atoned for this indignity in full. And he has made it right by his blood. And he has conquered it in his resurrection. Because Jesus went to the cross, you can build your future life on the truth instead of on a lie, like Jacob does in verse 24. And you can do all this because ultimately, friend, this story is not about you. God is the root and bedrock of all things good. How do I know? Because of Isaac's blessing in verses 28 through 29. Listen to these words, and you tell me where you've heard them before. May God give you of the dew of heaven, and of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Those last words, word for word, come from what? The blessing of God to Abraham. And so this blessing here in 28 and 29 echoes back to God with Abraham in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, and 22. And it also echoes forward to God with us, Jesus Christ incarnate as a baby in Luke chapter 2, ministering as Messiah to the blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, the dead, the poor, and preaching the gospel to them in Matthew chapter 11, crucified as our substitute in Mark 15, rising again as our Lord and Savior in John 20, ascending as victor in Mark 16, Luke 24, and Acts 1, returning as warrior king, judge, and beloved husband to us, his church in Revelation 19, 20, and 21. Jesus, the root and bedrock of all blessing yes and you shall be blessed yes and he shall be blessed genesis 27 33b why does isaac stand by his blessing here 
Esau even says, what you must have thought as you read this passage. Why couldn't you just bless him again? Why does the blessing to Jacob have to stand? Why can't you just bless me also, O my father? Because, here at church, the blessing of God does not depend upon the people of God. Even the patriarchs. Once he's given the blessing, he's not the one giving the blessing. He's invoking the blessing. God gives the blessing. And so he's invoking here a power so beyond our imaginings that for us to even frame the thought, you know, couldn't you just do it again, is nigh unto blasphemous. God himself is the root and bedrock of all blessing, which is why the blessing with which Isaac has now blessed Jacob must stand because it's God's blessing. Now that sounds pretty dark when it comes to Esau's destiny. But you wait till later in this series, you'll see what happens to Esau, and it's not all bad. But listen, church, here's the good news. Though Isaac may have been fading, though Rebekah may have been meddlesome, though Jacob may have been dishonest, and though Esau may have been an impulsive fool, God remains good. God is good. Receive that today. In the midst of all your brokenness, in the midst of all your messiness, God remains good. Good. So unlike Esau in verse 37, you never have to worry about being left out. Worship team, you can start to join me. I'm almost done. Because God remains good, even in the here and now, you're going to see some signs of hope. It seems, if you read the English interpretation, that Esau's blessing was really kind of uh, crappy. What does he say to him? He says, away from the fatness of the earth. This is verse 39. Shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. But if you look at it in the Hebrew... It doesn't say away from. In the Hebrew, it just says from. It says from the dew of heaven shall your dwelling be. From the fatness of your earth, fatness of the earth. So not away from, but from. Now you're thinking, Todd, that's a very significant difference. And I was like, I know. But you see, I know just not what the interpreters think or what I think. Because I know the story, I know what happens to Esau. I don't want to spoil it for you, but his life turns out pretty good. And in the end, he actually is a picture of forgiveness to his little brother. Because God has been so good to him. Just wait till we get to that week. It's an awesome, and it redeems the whole messiness of this ugly story so far. Okay? You will see the provision of God in your day-to-day life. Not necessarily as fully as you'd like, not necessarily as consistently as you'd like, but you tell me, even in the midst of your difficult, successful life, have there not been moments where you have seen and experienced the goodness of God? Somebody show me your hand if you've seen and experienced the goodness of God. Hallelujah, right? Aren't you glad you came to church? Oh, I'm so glad I came to church. Because I never know if it's just me, but I just saw you say that that's our story. That God is good to us even as we work our difficult way home. You know what's really beautiful about this? (laughs) Unlike Esau, you're not going to have to break any yokes from your neck. Why? Because his yoke is easy. His burden is light. His burden... His burden is light. I like that part. That's my favorite part. (laughs) 
you don't have to break any yokes from your neck because his yoke is easy and his burden is light, Matthew eleven thirty. You never need to try to get even like Esau does in verse 41, and you don't have to hold grudges like Esau does in verse 42. In fact, you can give it time like Rebecca suggests they should do in verses 44 through 45, keeping in mind in her words from verse 45 that someday you're going home. That's what you call figurative interpretation right there. Someday you're going home. We know the story of Jacob. He does one day go home. You are one day going to go home because Jacob's line does end up blessed. And from his line comes the Davidic line. And from the Davidic line comes who? Jesus Christ, the God-man. Son of Adam. Son of man. Son of God. Son of David. Our Savior. Our dearest friend. And our only hope. The Lion of Judah's tribe. From this line, God does Show his faithfulness to his people, even though his people, like you and me, are fools. So give it time, because someday you're going home. So um, you don't need to hate your life like Rebecca does in verse 46, because unlike Rebecca, who had to live through the events of Genesis 27, you've learned from them. And the sooner you take these lessons and start living by them, the less messed up your life is going to be, which is very good news, because, let's face it, we all prefer glorious to just good enough.